0: hey what's up everybody welcome back to season two of the pop anime comics lounge where i have with me voice actor ben diskin who is the voice of eugene from hey arnold number one and number two from codename kid next door sai inaruto shippuden and joseph joestar and jojo's bizarre adventure to name a few so thank you for being on the podcast
1: i oh, my pleasure man thanks for having
0: me it's great to have you on i'm a big fan of a lot of what you've been in and a lot of people listen they grew up a bunch of your stuff that you're in so you started voice acting in the early 1990s. How did you get involved in
1: voice acting? I got involved in voice acting because both of my parents are professional actors. And when I was still developing in my mom's womb, her agent at the time said, Hey, you want us to represent your kid? And she said, Sure. So before I was actually born, I've had an agency representing me in the field of acting. And it just sort of went from there. I was a little baby and I would do baby commercials, stuff like that. Like, We need you to be in this McDonald's commercial, eat chicken, McNuggets, and smile a lot. And that was easy. And then when I started being able to actually speak and slightly be able to read they were like well you're six and you have a cute voice why don't you just try reading this audition copy into this microphone and it was for commercials and stuff like that i couldn't read then this was before a lot of the early learning programs we got now so they just sort of said hey here's the line repeat after us and i said okay cool and i just mimic whatever the audio engineer asked me to do and it just kind of went from there and so i just started progressing further in the voice acting side of things after i kind of parted ways more or less with on-camera work i just found it a lot more fulfilling and to answer your question more succinctly i basically just got born into it.
0: And being that you progressed from commercials, on-screen stuff, very young, and then eventually coming into the voice acting, did you have any training throughout this entire time?
1: Technically, yes. I believe his name is Kevin McDermott, I believe, but really the only training that I'd had was we were on the set of Kindergarten Cop, and they would have somebody work with the kids to make sure we gave good performances. A different movie I did called Mr. Saturday Night, they had a guy who would train me and how to sing a little song that I had to sing at the beginning of the movie, or at least dub to it, basically. But other than that, it's really just my parents. Because, like I said, they were both actors, so they were just like, we'll help you. And that was really my acting lessons. So I would say that I don't have any training that's like officially like, I went to acting school and I took these classes and I went to college for theater and stuff like that. Other than one class in community college for theater, that was really the closest I've ever come to actual acting lessons. It's all been just sort of school of hard knocks for me.
0: And now to talk about one of your first roles as a voice actor. I know we're skipping over some of your early roles, commercial work, kindergarten cop. It's okay. It's okay. We'll survive. But one of your first early voice (laughs) actors... acting roles was in Problem Child as Junior Howley. How did this role come about? This was the very first animated series I ever did. It started the way pretty much
1: 99.9% of all jobs start out, which is an audition. You get sent to some sort of a studio from your agency and they say, hey, we want you to try out for the role of uh, Junior Healy in this new cartoon based on the Problem Child movies. And I try it out. You go into a booth, the voice director or casting director starts giving you directions, maybe reads in with you, and you just sort of of go there and you show them what you can do and they liked it enough that I got a callback for it which is where they call you back and you try it again maybe there's more dialogue maybe there's more people in the room to really listen to you and I remember it because voice director Ginny McSwain said to me now listen if we hire you for this this is a really big deal because you're going to be the lead of this show so that means you have to be very very dedicated to this so we need you to be on board with this are you okay with that are you sure you can handle this responsibility and I was like yeah yeah I can do that and my parents were very happy they said yes we'll make sure you He reads the script ahead of time, and he's ready to go. We'll practice with him, and that's how it was. That was my first real
0: cartoon show. And now Junior was around your age at the time that you got this role. Did that yes. make it easier to get into his character considering that he was kind of experiencing what you were experiencing, at least in that age range?
1: <laughs> yeah, we were in the same age range. That was about all we had in common. I was the good kid in class, so I didn't mesh with a lot of the things that he would do, to the point where it drove Ginny McSwain nuts. There was some scene, I don't remember what the actual line was, but it was something like, I'm so mad I could explode. It was something like that. And I would read it like this, I'm so mad I could explode! And Ginny McSwain is like, no no, 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 Ben, you sound happy when you say that. I need you to sound mad. Like, grr, say it again. Okay, I'm so mad, I could explode. And she's like, no, no, you gotta sound angry, Ben. Angry! You gotta get mad. Come on, get mad. And it just kept progressively getting worse, where she was getting angrier and angrier, trying to get me pissed off. And my parents are behind her, just trying not to laugh their ass off as she's turning like beet red in the face, trying to get this super innocent, nice kid to show a side of himself that he's not used to. And then finally she goes, Ben, hasn't anybody ever made you mad? Hasn't anybody ever driven you crazy? And I'm like, well, actually, everybody's pretty nice to me! And she just, like, head-planted into the desk.
0: So, no, being in his age range didn't really help. And given that you're playing such a different character, what was that like? Did you find that frustrating or fun or experimental? And how did that affect you outside of voice acting?
1: I had fun doing the whole thing, because to me, it's all playing. So, it didn't really necessarily affect me in a really profound way, but Problem Child was interesting for me because this was that aha moment in my career when I went, oh, I think I want to do voices over specifically full-time. I want that to be my acting career, because when I was a little kid, I was maybe about eight years old, and I did a film with Arnold Schwarzenegger called Kindergarten Cop. I was one of the little kids in the classroom. Not a huge role, and it got even edited down even further in the final cut, and I made the very, very foolish mistake, because when you're a kid, you say stupid things, of telling fellow kids on the playground at my elementary school that I'm in this movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, because I thought it was really cool, and apparently so did they. So I wound up having this really weird following of kids who would follow me around the playground, pointing at me, yelling, kindergarten cop, kindergarten cop, and bugging me about it. And it started off feeling like, I'm popular now. This is so cool, too. I don't have a moment's peace, and this is driving me crazy. And then everybody who I thought was my friend because of the movie, when they realized that I was not a rich movie star with a mansion who has a chauffeur drive him around in a Ferrari or whatever the heck they thought a movie star would be, they basically started treating me like garbage. And I felt really, really just embarrassed and confused and upset. And I went, I don't like this. But with Problem Child, there were two seasons. There was the first season, this was like super early computer animation, and it really shows. It looks like if you've ever seen a show called Dr. Cats? It's an old Comedy Central show now, but it had like this squiggly look to it. It's really, really retro style. And then for the second season, they went, you know what? CG animation just isn't here yet. Let's do traditional cell animation. And my friends, who I swore to secrecy for this one, I was like, okay, only you guys can know that I'm going to be in problem, child, that I'm this character in this show. They all thought I got recast by the second season when it came around because they character designs were different. And so that was my realization of, oh my gosh, people are so visually oriented that even though the voice is exactly the same, because the character just simply looks different, they think it's a completely different actor. And I have complete and total anonymity as long as I want it. So the only way anybody knows who I am is if I tell them who I am. And I get to be an actor, and I don't have to deal with the stress of having people bothering me all the time. So that's really what Problem Child represented. It was just this, wow, this is a taste of the best of
0: both worlds. Now, I think we spoke about the social elements, but what about the actual learning aspect and how did working on Problem Child, and we're going to get into Hey Arnold and several others, how did those affect your schooling and your learning process?
1: Well, every job is a new learning experience. When you work with, say, Jeannie McSwain is an excellent voice director. She's still in the business today, and she's just as good, if not better. And when you get to work with a whole bunch of different people, whether it's different kids, like the way we worked in Hey Arnold, where it was a whole bunch of kids in a room recording together, or like Problem Child, where I was the only kid recording with a room full of adults, you start to pick up things really quickly and you start going, oh, okay, I see what this person is doing. That worked. This other thing didn't work. So you basically learn from your own mistakes as well as other people's mistakes because it's all just a giant classroom setting, essentially. And you find yourself just getting better just because there are so many talented people around you helping bring you up to their level.
0: And now we're going to segue right into, hey, Arnold, you came in during the second season as Eugene Horowitz. How did this role come about, and what was it like taking over for Christopher Castle? Technically, I did not
1: take over for Christopher Castle. I was actually the third voice. The second voice, coincidentally, was Jared Lennon, and he only did three episodes. I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. But he was actually the kid who played my best friend in a movie that aired on Disney Channel called Just Like That. But anyway, to actually answer your question, like I'm supposed to, it was fun because I had auditioned for that a long while ago, and I didn't get it. And they basically went through two other Eugenes before coming to me because I was third on the list. Keep in mind for shows that have kid actors, they need backups because they go, look, if this kid's voice changes, we probably can't keep him on the show playing a little kid when he sounds like he's going through puberty. So there were like five Arnold's throughout the series run. Of course, there's six now because there's the new movie that's coming out, the Jungle movie. But it was sort of like, okay, this is a role that I already knew what to do with because I already did the audition several months ago. So stepping into the role really wasn't that hard. It wasn't about trying to duplicate the same performance that the previous guys did because we were basically all on the same list for the same reason. We all sounded similar and we could all do that type of character pretty well.
0: And now Eugene is a very tragic character. He's born unlucky. Do you feel that you relate to him?
1: Overall, I've been a lot more fortunate than Eugene. But when you're a kid, the slightest bad thing feels like it's the end of the world. So I don't think getting into Eugene's head was really all that hard. He's just sort of an extreme version of what can go wrong, will go wrong. But what I liked about him was that he had a really positive attitude, no matter what incredibly horrible thing happens to him. And at least in the world of anime, we call them life-affirming groans, which is where a character who is either dead or might look dead, for the kids, we've got to make him go, "Uh, uh," so the kids don't think he's dead. So Eugene's version of that was always to pop up and say, I'm okay, no, don't worry, I'm fine. It's okay, that didn't hurt, I'm fine. But I always liked that about him because this is a character who just keeps getting hit with horrible, horrible problems throughout his whole life and he just smiles his way through it and acts like it's no big deal and that's ultimately the best attitude you can have towards situations like that. So I liked Eugene like that.
0: And you got to play Eugene for the longest out of any kid on that show. What was that like? And how fortunate do you feel that you were to be able to be this character for so long? I got
1: lucky, man, because when my voice did finally change, they had to recast me. I think I was maybe 14 or 15 when it finally changed. I was a late bloomer like that. So I was very fortunate to get to stay on a show like that for as long as I did. And it was a really great run. It's a room full of kids all trying to be professionals and failing miserably at it while poor casting and voice directors are like, all right, I need you guys to be quiet because you're talking over the other kids turn and we hear you on the microphone so cut it out but it was just a really unique adventure because I to this day I don't think I've ever worked on a show as a kid with a whole room full of kids and so that was really fun
0: and hey Arnold for my generation I'm 24 for everybody out there we grew up watching that so what is it like to know that even to this day a lot of us remember maybe not your voice per se but in the show and your character that you did for three seasons I think
1: it's really cool it shows you the power of nostalgia the fact that Craig Bartlett just went to Nickelodeon and said, hey, remember that movie I wanted to make based on Hey Arnold? Can we make it? And rather than going, no, nobody cares about Hey Arnold anymore. It does really well on Teen Nick is where it's running. And it's like, people still watch it. People still like it because it was a really solid show. Hells yeah. Let's make the movie that you never got to make because we told you no before the first time 20 years ago, something like that. To me, it's really endearing the fact that shows like this don't just disappear because it's not on TV anymore. It's all thanks to the internet. That's one of the neat things about it is stuff that you'd think is no longer relevant is still relevant to this day. You grew up with it. So did I. I was on it, and I grew up with it, too. So it's just really cool. That's the kind of staying power these shows can have. It's immensely flattering, even if it's not because of me or anything. And I know that's not why people would watch Hey Arnold,
0: I gotta watch that Ben Diskin show. Like,
1: nobody does that. But
0: still, it's just really cool. And now to talk about a show that you were maybe a little bit more of the centerpiece, which is Codename Kid Next Door as (laughs) number one, number two, and the delightful children from down the lane. How did all of this come about?
1: So this is one of my favorite stories to tell regarding luck. If anybody ever asks me, what does it take to do well in the world of voiceover? If you have three things together, you will guaranteed 100% do really well in the world of voiceover. And one, talent, who you are as an actor. Two, personality, what do you like to work with? And three, luck. And sometimes it just comes down to luck. There are people out there who are super talented and really nice, and they just can't catch a break for any number of different reasons. They're always a runner up for every single role they go out on, and they don't get anything and they wind up having to like move back home in defeat to some other state and just give up. So Codename Kids Next Door started off just a pilot that Tom Warburton was going to make. I believe it was either the second or the third Cartoon Network's big pick where they said, okay, we're going to get a bunch of pilots and have them made and then let viewers vote on them on which one they want to see turned into an actual series. So when I went out to audition for this, I tried out for two roles. I tried out for number four and for number two. Tom Warburton originally wanted a friend of his, Sue Rose, who was also the voice of Angela Anaconda she was originally going to be his top choice for the role of number two and the only reason I even auditioned for number two at all was because Colette Sunderman said listen I know you want your friend Sue to play this but just in case let's put this role out to audition too just to see if there's anybody else out there that you like and so if, if she hadn't have done that I would have never been on the show period because I would have only auditioned for number four and I wouldn't have gotten it and that would have been the end of it but I tried out for number two and Tom apparently he told me this later he looked over at Colette and said oh man I'm gonna have to tell my friend Sue Rose that she's not playing this role I found somebody else like better and so that's how I got that gig so for number one Originally, it was going to be Tom Kenny, because Tom and Tom, both Toms, Tom Warburton and Tom Kenny, they'd worked together on a short called Kenny and the Chimp, and Tom Kenny's an amazing voice actor. He's a really great person. No duh, would anybody want to work with him? He's terrific. And so Tom wanted him to be number one, but he listened to it over and over, and he was just like, I'm just not really feeling this. And so instead, they wound up hiring for the pilot a real kid. I believe he was maybe 12 at the time. He wasn't British, but his mother was. And so because of that, he'd heard this British accent his whole life, and he could do it flawlessly. So, we recorded the whole pilot and everything sounded really great. He was number one, I was number two, D was four, Cree was five, etc. And we laid this thing out. So, there are things we call the pickups, which is where something either just didn't really work and they want to change a line or they didn't like a performance and they just want to re record the performance. And so, they had the kid come back in. Meanwhile, between the time for pickups and the time from the original recording, his voice had changed. So, he no longer sounded like a little boy anymore. He sounded like an adolescent and it just didn't work work and they couldn't get it to work so tom was like i have to recast number one again so he held auditions for it had a bunch of people come in he didn't like any of them so then colette again this is that luck factor said well why don't you have d and ben audition for it since they're already in the pilot anyway see what they can do so we came in we auditioned for it and he was like you know what that's the voice right there i'm gonna have ben also play number one i went in redid all his lines and they put it all together and it aired like that as the pilot for i believe it was called no p in the ool for cartoon network's big pick Then more luck comes in because it was a competition. There were nine other pilots that this thing was up against. And so they would air them a whole bunch of times and let people vote by phone or online. And Kids Next Door won with a landslide victory and became a brand new Cartoon Network Cartoon Cartoon. And so we went from there and we wound up recording six seasons of the show. So I basically would have never had any of that at all if it weren't for Colette going, why don't you give this kid a shot? That's how that happened.
0: And do you have a preference? Do you like number two better than number one? Or do you like number one better than number two?
1: Number two was always easier for me to do because he's a dork and so am I. Number one, that one I actually like more because it pushed me harder. So much of the challenge came from trying to make sure I sounded like a leader as opposed to sounding timid and nervous and not really knowing what I was doing. Because you got to realize I was maybe... 16 or 17 when we recorded the very first episode I'm surrounded by Dee Bradley Baker Cree Summer and and Lauren Tom who are all extremely professional very talented voice actors with years more experience than me and I had to basically be the boss of them and be commanding in this room and that was really hard for me to break out of that shell of I'm the quiet nervous kid who doesn't say anything to anybody ever and so I appreciate what the role of Number One did for me as an actor and as a person to just get me more used to talking to people this interview probably I wouldn't exist if it weren't for number one. I'd probably still be a super duper ultra shy guy and not able to speak to strangers.
0: And so, being that you were sixteen, seventeen at the time, and you're with all these adults what did you pick up from all these professionals that really helped you later in your career? From
1: Cree, I picked up my very dirty mind. She corrupted me extremely quickly. I love her to death and she's like one of the most foul-mouthed people I know and I love it. Hysterical. All the terrible jokes she made. From Lauren, I just really respected Lauren because this was also when Futurama was going around and that was a big deal. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Amy Wong. That's so cool. And from D, I actually learned what I call baking a script because his last name is Baker. Ha, get it? Baker? Anyway, the way the scripts were sent to us for this show was rather than just getting a movie style script with like the direction of what's happening and then the character's line they just give you the lines so you'll get a whole bunch of lines that just say like ah oh whoa and that's all it says and so then they also send you these gigantic super thick storyboards that they would mail to you because again this was before pdfs and email were really such a thing and so you'd get this package in the mail and that was the entire episode in storyboard format so what D would do is he would sit at home and go through the storyboard and then mark up or as I like to call it baking a script and write down exactly what each one of those noises were so when it came time for him to record he already knew what to do with all the dialogue and I was like oh that's really smart I should do that (laughs) because instead I was just looking at through the pictures going (laughs) pretty pictures (laughs) this is neat (laughs) so that taught me a level of professionalism that I like to think I maintain but real talk I'm a dummy So I'm going to say I probably don't really do as much of that as I should. Sigh. That's really, I would say, what I took away mostly from that show. Filthy jokes and professionalism somehow wrapped in one.
0: And this show is very different structured than others where there was half episodes and they were acronym. How did that affect your recording?
1: Uh, the sessions were uh, four hours long so for the first two hours we would do the first 11 minute episode and then for the second two hours we'd do the second 11 minute episode so if you watched say a 30 minute episode of Codename Kids Next Door you'd see like the first one and then there would be a commercial break and then you'd see the second one and so basically if you saw that that's how we recorded it usually was like first episode second episode and we just go like that
0: and now to get away from the wonderful world of Codename Kids Next Door to dive into your first dubbing role which is Blood Plus what was the this like going from the cartoon world into anime and dubbing so
1: i have been a fan of anime since the original oceans dub of dragon ball z that was airing on not public access but like one of the saturday morning networks that never ran cartoons for me it was kcal 9 as opposed to fox kids or kids wb and it was this show and it, i was like you guys there's this show it's on at like 6 30 in the morning before the other sub starts on like fox you guys have to watch this it's so amazing and all my friends are like what what are you talking about like no 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 Try Trust me, it's called Dragon Balls or something like that. Everybody spelled shit with like a Z. It was the 90s. Extreme! Stuff like that. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I loved that show. And I remember going, I want to be on this show. Like, I didn't get that it was recorded in Canada. But I was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life. And I really like this. Because my very, very first anime was Sailor Moon. And I remember watching that going like, I don't really get it. But for some reason I can't explain. My pants get tight every time I watch them do the transformation stuff. So i was just a filthy, filthy person. Again, thank you, Kree. Anyway, so to me, anime it was something that i had always been part of my life and i really wanted to do it but i had no clue how to get into it and i only had auditions come to me through my agency so for some reason they decided to do this show and they submitted it through agencies and i remember it said on the side listen this doesn't pay very well this is a really low budget thing because it's dubbing it's under the dubbing contract which does not pay very well so you don't want to do this you don't have to and i was just like i don't care oh my god animu yes and so I sent in an audition to this for this show, and I wound up booking the role for, based on the audition, and the guy who's directing this was Michael Hack, who is Olivia Hack's father, and Olivia Hack was the voice of Rhonda from Hey Arnold. So I'm assuming that's probably where he recognized my name from. And we started recording this thing, and I had no clue how to do any kind of ADR work of dubbing. So for anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know how that works, you hear in your headphones three beeps at a very specific rhythm, and where the fourth beep would normally be in that... Pattern, that's where you jump in and you start talking. So it'd be like boop, 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 talk. I didn't know how to do that. I thought you were supposed to come in on the third beep. So I was like super early for every one of my lines. And apparently neither the recording engineer, Michael Hack, our director, David Barr is the name of our recording engineer. Apparently none of them realized that I'd never done any kind of ADR or anime dubbing in my life and had no idea how to do it. And so Dave, our engineer was like, Ben, you're supposed to come in where the fourth beep would be. And he thought he was just like joking with me, like teasing me, but I'm sitting there going like, Oh, that's how this works. Cool. So we started recording the series And it turned out because I have a bit of a musical background. I'm not going to say I'm a musician, but I did play clarinet when I was a kid. So, like, I have some idea of how rhythm works. And it turned out to be something that I was just reasonably good at on my first try. And so when we were about 10 episodes in, that's when they were like, so what other anime have you done? I'm like, I've never done anime before. This is my first one. And Phil Crane, who I later found out apparently had a heart attack, literally, from working on Blood Plus because of all sorts of shit that had been going wrong. He's just sort of staring at me with this slack-jawed look of, oh, my God, we hired a dude with zero zero experience to play one of the main characters in this. Okay! That's another thing! <laughs> but worked out just fine, fortunately. Because when I auditioned for this character, he's like the brother of Saya, who's this super-powered, like, vampire god, basically, and she's the main character. I'm just a regular human guy, so I figured, you know, hey, it's anime! I'm sure my dude is gonna die in the first couple episodes, and apparently he's a main character in the whole show, and he's in, like, all 50 episodes. So, my very first experience, once again, learning on the job, was Blood Plus that's how I learned how to do dubbing
0: and this anime deals with some pretty intense shit for lack of a better word Did you know what you were getting into? I knew what I wanted it to be, because I'd
1: seen the original Blood, The Last Vampire, the movie, so I had an idea of what this kind of show would have in it. I definitely did not see the implied child rape thing coming. That's a thing in that show, so if you haven't seen that, look forward to that. But I expected it to be bloody. It's a show called Blood Plus, so it better have blood in it. I thought it was really neat looking, and I was just pleased as punch to be a part of it. It didn't bother me one bit that there were some dark things in it.
0: And now to get away from the bloody and implied child rape... You Loaded want to spend that. like 10 minutes talking about child rape? Woo! Anyway, just to go back a little bit because you said that Sailor Moon kind of made your pants tight and you got to be <laughs> in Sailor Moon. <laughs> what was that like and how were your pants adjusted in that realm?
1: Well, now that I know all those characters are underaged, it doesn't affect me the way it did back when I was a kid. uh uh-huh. <clears throat> So, yeah, no. For me, it's just Gurio on the Viz dub of Sailor Moon. It's just fun. The interesting thing about the new dub of Sailor Moon is the original creator of Sailor moon has a very big say in who gets to play what roles like she is really involved heavily in that process to make sure that it's a very very faithful dub which unfortunately the 90s one just couldn't be the time it was produced really wouldn't let you get away with a lot of stuff so you have the obvious lesbian couple sailor scouts who they're like cousins that's all they're not romantically interested <laughs> but in ours it's like okay we can just lay stuff out exactly the way it's supposed to be but umino is one of the characters that for some reason they just let me say weird crap through him and and it comes out, and so now there's a bunch of random memes that I got to inject into the show. I think at one point, I deliberately botched the saying the Konami code from Contra. I threw in an over 9,000 joke, and they kept it in there. And I'm like, yes, Kel. So it's fun to be in the redub, dub I should say, of Sailor Moon, even though that's like what I grew up with.
0: And given that you got to do it in the Viz dub of Sailor Moon as well, and you got to do it in Crystal, how do you feel that really benefits the fans that they get to hear kind of the same voice in both of these dubs and how they're being re-released?
1: It actually really helps with the branding because it keeps everything the same so that people don't feel like, have to like adjust to like a new Sailor Moon and a new Sailor Mars and a new Sailor Venus and a new Sailor Mercury because, oh, now it's Crystal, so completely different. I like the fact that it's really more the acting performance that changes from the 90s redub to Crystal just because it's kind of like okay it feels like a different show but at the same time I can still feel the connection to the original ones I think it just benefits the viewers most of all I actually really like that I think it's cool
0: and now I know that you're a big Dragon Ball Z fan but Sailor Moon is one of those legendary animes too is it very cool for you to have that experience even if it's a minor character
1: Gurio because he's a side character and ultimately not really that important to the plot or anything I don't feel any pressure to be like oh man i've got to make this the best performance of my life it's just sort of like go in and have fun i can't imagine what it must be like for people like stephanie shea as the new voice of sailor moon where it's like okay if you don't get this right you're gonna have fanboys and fangirls down your throat going how could you ruin this character for me it's even if i just massively botched the character people will be like so whatever but to me it's all about fun i don't really feel any kind of pressure on that show
0: and you are Sai from Naruto Shippuden.
1: Yes, also known as not Sasuke. Not Sasuke,
0: that's a good one. <laughs> you, you like Sai Psy better. Sai's not an asshole. So, how did you get the role of Sai?
1: Sai was another audition that I did. This was after I'd already done Blood Plus, of course. I had auditioned for Naruto as both Naruto and Sasuke when those auditions first went out, and I didn't get to do any of them. So, when Naruto was kind of ending, that was when Mary Elizabeth McGlynn had me in to play this character called Arashi Fuma, who was a villain in one of the final filler episodes towards the very end of the series, and I got to do that, and I was like, this is really cool, and she'd also had me audition for somebody named Sai, and I had no idea who he was or what he had to do with the universe, I didn't even know that Shippuden was a thing, and so when I auditioned for him, it was just sort of like, play him emotionless, he has problems connecting to people, I was like, oh, okay, cool and I was able to get through that no problem, and I didn't really think anything of it, and then I later found out oh, I got that role, of that guy from the Naruto thing, okay, that's cool, I like that show, sweet, and turned out he was actually, at least at first, anyway. (laughs) A pretty interesting and important character, because this is the dude who's gonna replace Sasuke on Team 7. Then, of course, later on, they were like, that's not that cool. We're gonna wait till Sasuke comes back. But it was still fun, and as just a character, he's just fun to play, because it's basically just me acting like a GPS navigation system. Just, I don't really understand how anything works, but that's okay. It was like, this is easy. They mostly used my first takes, because it sounded the most like, I really didn't know what I was saying. I was reading the words for the very first time. So, it fits Psy very well and that's how that became a thing.
0: Going into that, I'm very curious because you bring out emotion and most voice actors, that's their job to really bring these characters out because that's all you have is your voice to make it work. So it seems like this is the anti-voice acting character. Yeah, I think the
1: hardest part about playing Psy is when he actually does get his emotions back and trying to keep him sounding like the same character because that was so much of his personality but it was almost refreshing for me to play Psy because it's so different from I need to put my heart and soul into this. Instead of just say the words that are written on the page, that's basically what they want because it'll make him sound flat. And we went through this point where the Japanese producers kept having notes coming back saying, flat, furato, 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 because I was giving him too much feeling. They had to keep pulling me back, 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 back and back. And finally it was like, oh, why am I fighting this? This is basically acting on easy. It's what everybody who does stage play for the first time does. I'm saying the words. I don't really know what they mean, but here they are. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what Sai is. So, just changing that when he finally does get his emotions back. Spoilers. Sorry, everybody, if you're not caught up with Naruto. It was like, oh, crap, I have to feel. Shit. Hey! No, 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 that's too much. Hey! Close. Fine. That's kind of what Sai was like.
0: And you also got to be part of the last Naruto movie. What was that experience like, and how do you feel about Ino? <laughs> I, to this day, wonder how the heck Sai and Inno got together? Because it's established early on where he's
1: trying to figure out human emotions. He's like, maybe I should say the opposite. Opposite of what I'm really feeling. And so he looks at Edo and he says, You're very pretty. So basically, he's saying, I think you're ugly, but instead, I'm gonna say you're pretty. And she's like, "Oh, you're so great. <laughs> your pale skin is so attractive to me. And that sexy, not at all femboy midriff you have, woo! So that's how they got together, I guess? So I'm really confused as to how that actually became a thing and stayed. I guess he was like, Well, once you hit ugly, I guess you can't get out. So they're together
0: for some reason, and they have a very, very pale child. And also, Naruto, you were in several of the video games. What was that like, and what is it like to be in a video game versus an anime?
1: The main difference is that for the video games, there is a timing issue where the original voice actor in Japan recorded this line, and it took him a total of 3.2 seconds to get through, so we need you to say the line in the same amount of time or a little bit less. It can't be a ton less, otherwise it screws up the timing, and it definitely can't go over, so that's really the only timing thing you have to worry about. Otherwise, it's basically like prelay, which is like original animation, where it's just you and you're not doing anything to picture. So the video games are just easier from, I would say, a timing standpoint because you're a little bit more free to just act and not worry about hitting specific timing moments. But it's basically the same characters, and for a lot of those games, they're really just following the story of both the anime-slash-manga anyway. So a lot of it was like, we already recorded this for the anime. I remember that. Time to just do it again for the video game. So that's basically what those were like.
0: And now Naruto is huge, and Sai's a very interesting character. Do you have a favorite moment on Naruto.
1: As Tai, it's gotta be the part where Sai asks Naruto if he has testicles or not. The funny thing is, most people would be like, that's an insult, but from Tai, he's really just trying to figure out, so, are you male or female, because I can't really tell. So, I find that deeply amusing. him asking whether he's a boy or a girl, slash, do you have any balls at all?
0: And and now to get away from Naruto, because I think that's the perfect note to end on that with, (laughs) because we all know Naruto doesn't have any balls. Anyhow, (laughs) I'm going to get so much hate for that. I don't really care, though. (laughs) We love Naruto in my apartment. Anyhow, to get away from Naruto and to talk about Digimon Fusion, where you were sure. Shaudemon and Omi Shadomon, which were some of the main Digimon for this series. What was yes. that role like? Not playing a human, but also still having a major voice?
1: So Digimon was one of these series that was on when I was basically a teenager. I'm talking about the very first one which was Digimon Digital Monsters on Fox Kids and I remember, I'm gonna give this a shot, and I watched a few episodes. One of them had Patamon and TK bouncing up and down in what is essentially like a giant bouncy castle that's supposed to be like a Digimon nursery giggling and laughing and hugging each other and I was just like, okay, I'm out. This is some garbage. I can't watch this piece of shit. I'm done with this. I'm done with anime for kids. I'm an adult, man. I'm cool. I don't need this crap. And then a friend of mine from the internet was like, no, 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 dude, you should watch this show again because it got a lot better. We're in the third season, essentially. The characters all went to the real world and shit just got real. And I'm like, what? So I started watching that and I was like, oh my gosh, I really like this. This actually became a damn good show. Holy cow. So I became a Digimon fan from that point out. I somehow made it through Digimon 0-2 which was just dreadful. Then Digimon Tamers came out and that was badass. That was the third series and I was like, this is freaking incredible. Even with a lot of the stuff they did to like make it children friendly and all that. I was like, I'm cool with this. Frontier came out, I was like, this is okay, but it's kind of forgettable. The fifth season came out, that one was alright, it had some issues, but I mostly liked it, and then I got to try out for Shoutmon, for Digimon Fusion, and I was like, oh my god, I would love to be a part of this show, because I love this series so much. And if I can be honest with you, I was a total douche on the set of Digimon Fusion, because I knew so goddamn much about Digimon, that every single mistake that they made while dubbing this show, I was the first to be like, that wrong. We need to fix this. No, Darulumon is not a lion. He's not a feline. He's actually supposed to be part drill, part wolf. Doruru. Like, drill and garuru, or like, growl. Sound. That's the Japanese onomatopoeia for growl. A wolf's growl, specifically. That's what he's supposed to be. We need to fix this. And They're like, oh, god damn it! I was that guy who was basically, like, fact-checking throughout the whole thing, and there's a bunch of stuff that I still missed, because I wasn't present for They mispronounced Mega Kabuterimon. They called him Mega Kabutierimon. I'm like, that's wrong! There's a character in it called Lush Angemon. The Japanese clearly meant to be Slash Angelon, He's a winged angel made entirely out of blades, not delicious slushies. Now this is wrong. Fix this. But they're like, Ben, we can't fix this. It's in the original Japanese character list. We're not allowed to change that. And then I like wrote to the producer at Saban and I'm like, please change this. And I got a note from Jamie Simone, our producer at <laughs> Tsubiopolis where we recorded saying, Ben, I know you're trying to make the show good. I appreciate it. Do not ever do that again. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And basically by doing that, I endangered their contract with Saban. Which is like really not cool. I was a douchebag, and I actually look back on that and I'm like, why did I do that? I should have just kept my damn mouth shut, just recorded whatever they wanted me to record, and been a good voice actor, but it was still really fun. And then not only was I Shoutmon in that, but somehow forced myself down people's throats as Cutemon until they just sort of relinquished. And they were like, fine, I guess he's playing Cutemon now. And that's how I got that role, because I was like, no, 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 I watched the subtitled version of this two years ago, and I developed a voice for this character, and it's perfect. And you guys are gonna love it, and I'm gonna do it, whether you like it or not. And they were like, like, all right, fine, that's going to be cute, Mon, great. And so that's how I got that job, was just by sheer determination and very, very poor behavior. So
0: given your attitude with Digimon and typically... One of the things that I hear from other voice actors that I've interviewed is you need to have the right attitude and the right personality in the studio to work with. Maybe excluding Digimon, but how do you feel that (laughs) attitude and personality and not being a douchebag really helps to get you more work?
1: I would say, like I said earlier in this interview, it's personality, acting, and luck. Personality is definitely important in it. If you have a bad attitude, take a more extreme version of what I was like for Digimon Fusion. I won't say what this show was, and I will not not mention this actor's name, but there was a show, it was an animated series, and one of the main characters was played by this guy and this guy started taking as the show progressed, he was doing pretty well, this real attitude about how his character wouldn't say that, and I won't say it this way, because I know this character you see, and it drove everybody who worked on that show completely bonkers. They couldn't stand this guy by the end of this show, and the creator of it, as well as the voice director, basically went around telling everybody at that studio never hire this guy again, he is the worst pain in the butt and as a result that dude's career went from what could have been extremely promising because he was a good actor to he appears in like a couple of things here and there like some minor roles in video games and that's basically it because he developed this bad reputation and that's the problem with having the wrong attitude. My worst sins as an act attitude wise ironically was during Kids Next Door because like I said I was a late bloomer so I didn't hit that dark angsty teenage phase until I was like 19 or 20 so that's when I was listening to a lot of My Chemical Romance and just wanna watch the world burn and I hate everything and everybody. And also we would record at 9am and I was a night owl. I just couldn't get up that early. So I would show up. I was exhausted. Then I would drink a shitload of coffee with sugar in it to try to get some energy. I wanted the world to burn. And then I was also in total awe of all the people I worked around so I was extremely shy. So I was this quiet bundle of angry, shy rage. Fortunately, at least the quiet part was mostly there. So most people didn't get to see just what a horrible asshole I was at that point in my life. And as a result, they still kind of talked to me, which is a miracle if you ask me. But now that I'm out of that phase, I've become a little bit more outgoing I'm still shy, but I pushed my way through that at least. And just being a nice person who's empathetic and good to work with has really helped my career. It's one of the reasons why I guess you'd call it return business with people who hired me before and they're like, I like that guy. I'm going to hire him again. And that definitely has a part of it because even if I had the same talent and vocal range that I have now, but I was a douche canoe, honestly, I don't think I'd be getting as much work as I do. And I'm quite grateful for it.
0: And then one of the final animes that I want to talk about is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure as Joseph Joestar. And that show, people have been waiting for this character for years, if not decades. How did you get
1: this role. 99.9% of the time it's just an audition, but this one was a little different. They didn't just hand me the role, but what they did do was they had me send in several auditions back and forth with minor adjustments each time to show them what it would sound like. So we had one where it was no accent, one where it had a British accent, one where it had more of a cockney accent, and they kept playing with it to see if they got exactly what they wanted, and then I just basically got an email saying, "Okay, we want you to play Joseph Joestar for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure." And recording that show was just a massive whirlwind We recorded that thing fast. There were multiple sessions where we would spend at least two or three days in a row of like a 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. session and then an hour for lunch and then another 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. session. And we just cooked it to get through part two as quickly as we did. And it was really exciting and just a ton of work just blasting me in the face.
0: But it was really rewarding because I felt despite how fast we did it, it turned out pretty darn well. And do you feel that this was easier because there's a lot of American rock British pop culture reference rock music type references all throughout this series no because we had to change a lot of it due to copyright
1: issues so unfortunately we can't say ACDC the rock band so we have to call them ACDC and we went through so many different freaking pronunciations for how to say that without getting in trouble was it ACDC ACDC it became just super frustrating and then a lot of the Englishisms that they use in the show are something like oh no and oh my god it's delivered with a very Japanese delivery that doesn't really sync up with an American one. So figuring out a way of incorporating that
0: in there without it sounding really out of place was actually more of a challenge
1: than an assistance.
0: JoJo's Bizarre Venture had a lot of people involved in that, a lot of great talent. And I know that you don't act directly with them throughout the entire process. But mm-hmm. knowing who was on that cast and knowing what it was based off of nonetheless and knowing that fans were kind of expecting it, did that really add any pressure to you going into the booth? I
1: have a friend. Her name is Kira Buckland. She's a fellow voice actor. and She is one of the biggest JoJo's fans on the planet. And there's a lot of things that I think we left out that I really wish we'd put in because I feel like there's just so much stuff that could have been there, but we just didn't have the time. So things like that I didn't realize were super important. There's the vampire noise, which is a very specific sound, which is ri, and none of the characters do that in ours. So it's a big deal in the Japanese version, and we don't have it in ours, and it's kind of like, oh, if I'd known, I would have said something, and we could have put that in there. But to answer your question, I mostly feel pressure from Kira to get it done right. But overall, I think for what this was and how it was put together, I think we did a pretty darn good job, all things considered. For instance, I know that they are doing part three right now, but I don't think they're doing it with accents. So my character is going to go from having a British accent in part two to just a standard American accent in part three. And I guess you could be like, well, he's been living in America longer, so maybe he's kind of uh, wore off and it went away. I don't really know if that's how accents work exactly, but okay. because Some people really liked the fact that we went for every character from these different nationalities needs to sound like it idea to a lot of people didn't like it. Viz is taking over for this and I think they're really just trying to separate themselves from what we did to kind of make it feel like fresh start for the series. So I feel pressure, but I think all things considered it turned out pretty darn well.
0: And do you have a favorite moment that took place in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? Tequila!
1: That's probably my favorite part. And if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about.
0: Now I want to wrap this up, but I'm very curious. I mean, you've been in video games, you've done cartoon work, you've done anime. What is the main difference between those three segments of voice acting for those who are unaware of the difference? They have
1: similarities between them and differences. So for, obviously it's all voiceover, so that's the big thing they have in common. Good job, Ben. Great insight. The other thing would be for original animation, usually you're going to get the script ahead of time. You're going to be able to sit down in the comfort of your own home, read through your lines, understand what your character is going to say and do, and come in prepared and ready to go. For original animation, most of the time, you're going to be in a room full of a whole bunch of people, so you're going to be able to have other actors to act off of because you're all recording it together. And it definitely creates a group dynamic. With anime, it's just you in a booth. And so you're super, super, super reliant on the voice director to have a very cohesive vision for how they want the scene to turn out so that you know that whatever they're directing you to do, they're going to make sure that the other actors are in that same ballpark. So if you're sneaking into a fortress, you don't have one person sounding like they're right outside the door whispering and somebody else who thinks that they're 100 yards away going like, yeah, we should go in there and do some stuff. (laughs) So there's a lot of faith in the director. And of course, there's a timing issue, which is you have to match mouth flaps and still give a good performance without it sounding like you're just struggling to make sure every word gets in there. And so I would say the big difference between anime and original animation and with video games it's a mixture of the two. Usually there's no timing stuff, it's all whatever you think sounds good and it's your instincts as an actor, but because the scripts for these things are thousands literally of pages long you really can't just get the script ahead of time and read through the whole thing and see what you're supposed to do. So when you show up here's the line, go. And so you have to be able to basically sight read it's the equivalent of that for voiceover so it's this okay i get to act i don't have to worry about math flaps but man i really need to see the line and just know what to do with it and give it to them so that they get it one or two takes and we can move on because time is money and we got to go so video games i would say are like kind of like the halfway point between original animation and dubbing and that's i would say the biggest difference slash similarity between all of them
0: And final question is that you've been voice acting. You've had a 20 plus year career. I'm very curious what advice you have for people who want to get into voice acting.
1: Make sure that you are an actor. And what I mean by that is not, do you have acting talent? What I mean by that is make sure it's really something that you have a strong desire to do. This needs to be the thing that you want to do above everything else. Because most people will tell you, if you can do something besides acting, do that instead. It is one of the most brutal industries to get involved with. There are so many people out there who have immense skill, who are wonderful people, who cannot get work to save their soul. And it's expensive to live out in a place like Los Angeles to try to make it as an actor. It's really rough. But if you are an actor, meaning who you are deep on the inside, you would just have this never-ending urge to entertain people, to perform, and this is really something that you want to do, that's when you should actually start considering this. Because even if you're not a good actor, you can take lessons and get better, and everybody improves with time and effort. So that's not the issue. It's just... Make sure this is really something you're serious about because it's not a career where it's like, I can just record from my closet at home and I can make money at home. It's like a get rich quick scheme. It's like, no, the real acting industry for voiceover is remarkably different from that. And you really need to make sure that this is what you want to do so that when you make this giant life-changing decision of packing your bags and moving out to someplace like California or New York or Texas or wherever, and starting from scratch, you have a plan, you have incentive, and you have your own personal drive pushing you forward. That's the best advice I can give is make sure this is something you really want.
0: And then finally, after all this time that we've been speaking, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Facebook, website, Twitter.
1: On Twitter, I'm at Benjamin Diskin. Not at Ben Diskin. Somebody else got it to me and they haven't even posted in like two years or so. I'm also on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Ben Diskin official. But honestly, I'm a lot more active on Twitter. So really, following me there is just better for your health. And I don't have a website. So don't bother looking for one. It doesn't exist yet. And I'm going to be at SubbotanCon in Phoenix, Arizona this September. I believe it's Labor Day weekend. So come on out and see me at that if you're available. That's September 27th. I should say, just in case anybody's listening to this like years later, and they're like, oh my god, it's a mountain term. And so that's where you can find me on the interwebs.
0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. And as always, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. In the meanwhile, while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as give us a follow on Twitter at PopAnimeComics so you never miss anything with this podcast and the website. And we currently have a Patreon up and running. It's PopAnimeComics. Every dollar helps to keep this podcast up and running and to keep on delivering you great content. And if you can't donate, completely understand, but definitely consider writing a review on iTunes to let people know that we are out there and we are continuously bringing you fantastic interviews. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.